on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined in the studio by the District Attorney for the Northwestern District, which encompasses Hampshire and Franklin County, David Sullivan. Dave is with us every month, and we appreciate his time and expertise and insights and information that he can provide to us. District Attorney, I, I want to tell you, and so I was preparing for your t- appearance on this show, I was scouring the newspapers and going back for the last number of weeks and months, and what I was struck by is the lack of the implementation of the old newspaper adage, if it bleeds, it leads. And what I am struck by is that, with some exceptions, which I want to ask you about, because as just Tyler was point, pointing out to us just before he came on the air, uh, recent murders and some very, very disturbing cases in uh, Chesterfield, East Hampton, um, and uh, uh, Greenfield. Greenfield. And Greenfield, thank you. Um, those aside for just a moment, it seems to me that there is a decided lack of newspaper headlines of this, that, or the other horrible crime going on. The Gazette, because it's a local newspaper and because of that old adage, uh, would cover those kinds of crimes. And I'm wondering whether, from your perspective, as a longtime district attorney, whether or not crime is actually down, whether there's, there's less crime, whether that's obviously all to the good, if that's true. We hear a lot about fentanyl and the, uh, dr- the scourge of drugs, but it seems to me maybe that's not happening as much here in our counties. What's it, what is it like? What's the crime like in terms of its prevalence from your perspective, either statistically or anecdotally? Well, I think over the last decade, uh, it's been reduced. Crimes have gone down. And I think that police have more discretion now to to use their judgment in the field, not necessarily having to arrest them. I think we've had great diversion programs where the recidivism rate is very, very low, particularly our drug diversion and treatment program and other diversion programs that try to get people out of the criminal justice system. So I think over time it's, it's uh, gone down. Certainly, I think we had about 8,800 new cases come into district court. It's now down to about uh, 5,500. So it's, it, that's, a, that, that, that's a sign that we're making progress, both reducing crime but also not bringing some of these cases into the criminal justice system when we have discretion. Can we pause there for just a minute? 8,800 cases in which district court, down to 55? No, this would have been all four of our district courts, Greenfield, Orange, uh, Belgiantown, and Northampton. So that was back in 2012, yeah. So that is a reduction in the four district courts that your office prosecutes in. The number has been reduced from 8,800 cases to 55. That's substantial. Yes, and you attribute that to diversion programs, to persons not being brought into the system because of police discretion, and a reduction in the actual number of crimes being committed? Yeah. Uh, I think what's important is <clears throat> it takes time to, to uh, impact, have impact with your policies. And uh, certainly my attitude is that um, you want to rehabilitate people, you want to get people on the right track, um, you want to have accountability. So I think a combination of diversion with accountability does make a difference in the long run. Is there more discretion being exercised by officers on the 
street in terms of not bringing cases, giving a warning or having a, uh, some other diversion? Because as a friend of, friend of ours used to say, one of the best way to deal with the criminal justice system on behalf of a client, if you're a defense lawyer, is to make sure that the client never gets into the system. And I think there's a lot to that. Prosecutors, interestingly, have a lot more influence and impact on whether someone gets into the system or not than a defense lawyer who is, well, always playing defense. So tell us about some of the ways in which you keep people out of the system. Well, I think, first of all, we have police departments that are very progressive uh, compared to other police departments around the state. So they have the ability to use discretion out in the field, you know, and maybe not bring it to criminal court that it gets resolved through restorative justice, we we have a restorative justice program in Hampshire County, and they can divert those cases in a good way uh, that's satisfactory to the police, a victim of crime, and also to that offender. So the more that we do those type of uh, impact diversions, uh, I think that we, we've shown through our uh, our research that um, recidivism go, it goes down. So, so District Attorney Dave Sullivan, tell me this: you've just told us that the number of cases in the district court where the they're not insignificant cases they're important cases and some of them are serious cases but they are certainly not the most serious cases the more serious cases which go to superior court are there fewer cases in superior court yeah, as absolutely, well absolutely really yes you can you tell us more about that uh, we try to handle more cases in district court. When I came there, there was a substantial Which num- was what year? Were you uh, 2011. There was a substantial number of cases that could have been handled at the district court level, which means that you can be punished by two and a half years max, not state prison. Um, two and, and a half it, years in the House of Correction, House, and, House not, of Correction. And, and generally not a state prison right. sentence, right? So I know that initially we made an impact. I think we reduced the number of indictments by about 20 to 25 percent, depending on the county. So... Uh, what really kind of drives our indictments now are uh, the drug couriers from, uh, um, you know, Holyoke and Springfield up to Vermont that, you know, there's seizures that are made there. So some of it you could almost say is non-county because it's the interstate, but that's part of our total. So, But we have reduced uh, the number of indictments over time. Can you give us some sense off the top of your head, maybe this is unfair, number of indictments in Hampshire and Franklin County? Usually about 100 a year for each one. You know, there's probably 200 altogether. Uh, sometimes it goes down to 75, but um, we just don't have as much uh, felony crimes. And can you attribute that to anything in particular? Those are hard to predict. Those are the most serious ones, um, but they have gone down, and I think a lot of it is to uh, try as much as possible to keep it within that district court, which is, uh, you know, really they know about alternative programs. They know about, uh, you know, um, you know, having people uh, do rehabilitation. State prison's a warehouse, for lack of a better word. So as soon as you send somebody to um, state prison, they aren't going to get the resources they would have gotten in the local uh, jail. Yeah, assuming that they can live through it. Listen, what I would like to know is this. When you make a charging decision, when your office makes a charging decision, decides you're going to indict, is that a decision on your part that if this person is convicted that you're going to recommend state prison as opposed to a house of correction? Because even in superior court, there are a lot of cases that still have the opportunity or the option of a house of correction, a local jail sentence. Right. Um, initially, we look at state prison, but it's not a definitive um, finding, so to speak, by the uh, the prosecutor at that point. Some have to be in, indicted in, in um, 
Superior Court because there's only jurisdiction in that Superior Court. It's, there's not jurisdiction. In, for a murder case, for yeah, example. Or rape or kidnapping. There's just certain charges that have to be brought in Superior Court. But the final decision on sentencing um, is probably further down the line. So we're, we're flexible. I mean, some of the most serious ones, obviously, don't have flexibility uh, on a house of corrections for a murder or rape. But and, um, and often those cases carry mandatory minimums. Exactly. And, uh, you know, with drug cases... You know, people are indicted for the minimum mandatory, but you know the most recent one that we handled, uh, a, a wiretap investigation that resulted in a substantial number of defendants out of uh, Franklin County, I'd say uh, the majority of them uh, received house time because they were on a lower level, but they were indicted because it was part of a, a larger case. So, you know, and some were no prost. So, okay, no prost means you yeah. elect not to yeah. prosecute. Somebody lower on the conspiracy level. And uh, so we were flexible on those, and you know we wanted to make sure we were fair to everybody along the line. Uh, District Attorney Dave Sullivan, I want to come back to the, some of the specific cases that have been brought and are pending here in Franklin and Hampshire counties, but I want to make sure we get in a discussion about Rachel Rollins. The, so why don't you tell us your reactions? You worked with her. Uh, this is, a, I think, in many ways a tragic story. And it's a very important law enforcement story in our state. So tell us. Well, can, can we just lay out who Rachel Rollins yes, was? Yes, I was going to ask. Uh, Rachel Rollins uh, had, had been elected as a district attorney uh, back in, oh, was it 2018, I believe? Yeah, that's right. In you know, Suff Suffolk County. Suffolk County, yeah, which is you know, the most substantial cases uh, are usually within Suffolk and Middlesex County, the large counties. Suffolk uh, being Boston. Yeah. And Suffolk, Winthrop, Chelsea uh, are the the areas that it covers. So um, you know, Rachel was elected, and she was uh, implementing progressive programs. She was known as the progressive district attorney. Yeah, Plus she wasn't really, to tell you the truth. Those diversion programs never really got implemented the way they should have been. Really? Yeah. But she gained that reputation. But I'll tell you what happens with progressive. It's good to be progressive, but you need accountability. And she had a list of fifteen crimes that. She wasn't going to prosecute. Which, but it, made, which made a lot of headlines. Right. A lot of headlines. But when you don't hold people accountable for what they've done, that's not progressive. That's regressive. Okay. So she was elected in 2018. 2018. Assumed the office in 2019. And about two years into her term, there became an opening uh, for uh, the U.S. attorney because there was a change. Obviously, Joe Biden was elected. And so he had that opportunity to select so someone. So, so Rachel Rollins is the district attorney for Suffolk County. She's been in that position for some time. She's elected as an overt progressive uh, yep. that she ran on that platform. Yeah. And I just want to point out, first, African-American female to be the U.S. attorney. Yeah. Okay. So she's in the position as district attorney, state yep. district attorney. Yep. She's been elected. And there is then an opening for the federal U.S. attorney's office uh, in, in Boston, and she is appointed to that, that position. Yes? Exactly. By Joe Biden. Yes. And then things go horribly wrong. Over, and she was, she was appointed. There was a, a tremendous fight by Tom Cotton and others um, to keep her from becoming U.S. attorney, and progressives across the country sort of chimed in uh, in opposition to the opposition. Yes. So um, what happened while she was uh, in that position, which is, I would say, the most powerful prosecutor position in the entire state because you have large 
significant, complex uh, federal crimes as well as civil crimes, uh, civil matters rather. Um, so you have a lot of power. And so what initially triggered an investigation was that she attended a Democratic fundraiser for Joe Biden and uh, the vice president's wife, I mean the president's wife. Um, and that triggered um, an investigation by the Office of Special Counsel. I think it was another uh, ethics group. There was two uh, ethics people that did it. But what, um, what transposed was that uh, she was questioned about it. Um, and of course the investigation, uh, they kept it, uh, I think, as they should, confidential until they had done their report. Okay, and then what happened? There's a report done? Uh, yes, there were two reports that were done. I think they were both about 150 pages that uh, indicated uh, the quote from one the office special counsel was that it was the most egregious conduct they had seen in that investigation of uh, the Hatch Act. Because during the Hatch the Act is a federal act. There's also a state Hatch Act, and it's supposed to keep elected officials out of certain political areas and from making contributions, from being involved in politics, and they're supposed to be above the political fray. And that this goes back to, I think, the 19th, the Hatch Act goes back to, what, the 1930s, 30s, I think? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And, and she was found to have violated those laws. Yes, because not only did she go into the fundraiser that was up in Andover, Massachusetts, she mingled with people. She had her picture taken. There was a number of things that she should not have done as the U.S. attorney, which is supposed to be nonpartisan. As we know, it can be, you know, they're elected, they're appointed by the president. But once you're part of the Department of Justice, it's expected that you're going to be non-biased and you're not going to have involvement in political affairs. Uh, but what really sunk her was not only did she go in and do this, she lied about it. So when asked, you know, did she go in, she said no initially and then had to change her her story. Uh, what really is, I think, even more egregious is the fact that there was going to be an election for her successor. There was a successor as district attorney district for attorney. Suffolk County. And there was an interim district attorney that was appointed by Governor Baker, Kevin Hayden. And she had a favorite son, so to speak. And that his name was Ricardo Arroyo. And uh, he was running and she was... And I believe he was a city councilor in yes, Boston? Yes. Yeah. I think it's District 4. While he's running, and while she's U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, she's involved in the campaign, knee-deep. She's texting, she's advising, she's doing all these things that you can't do as a U.S. Attorney because you've taken that oath to the United States of America and to uphold the Constitution and not be involved in any political activities such as that. So yeah. as a result of all this coming to light, Rachel Rollins resigns as U.S. Attorney yes. to the deep embarrassment of our senators who really promoted her and the president who really uh, stood behind that nomination. And Nancy Gertner, the retired judge, who was the head of the committee that selected her. So really, really disappointing to many, many people who supported her. And I wonder, because there was opposition to her from the right for being a progressive, whether or not that was a deserved reputation or not, as you indicate, maybe not so much, but a lot of people said, this is the progressive DA, and it's so terrific, we're gonna have a progressive U.S. attorney. Does her resignation, does this story impact and badly impact progressive uh, criminal justice policies federally and in the state? No. I think what it impacts is that those prosecutors that have 
had a, pro a progressive platform need to look at the accountability side of things. I mean, the prosecutors that say we're not going to prosecute 15 or 50 crimes without that accountability quotient should really look long and hard and see whether that policy is really productive or not. Well, that's, that, that's really interesting because what she said is I'm going to eliminate prosecution of these minor crimes that are used too often to uh, ensnare. Well, let's take a minor crime, shoplifting. But what evolves out of shoplifting is organized retail theft, where people are going into stores with seven, eight people. They're stealing thousands of dollars worth of goods, and they're walking out because the store can't stop them, and the police don't want to go to a, a, a particular store because they're not going to be prosecuted for that crime. Now, that, that's, that's how things kind of spiraled as, as you learn oh, oh, I see. the I'm, slippery I'm, slope. We're not going to prosecute any shoplifting. So the shoplifters who you really don't want to prosecutors don't get prosecuted, but then some, well, professional criminals, shoplifters, they don't get prosecuted. Yeah. For example, in our office, we have a shoplift program. People are not prosecuted, but they're held accountable. They're, they're early on, whether it's a teenager or somebody. You know, organized uh, retail theft is very serious. Target lost a billion dollars last year in organized retail theft and other type of thefts. So... What I'm saying, Bill, is that if you don't hold people accountable to some degree, not, you don't have to give them a criminal record, but if you don't hold them accountable, what message does that send to others? I mean, it, it's blatant. People go into grocery stores now that's stealing $600 worth of beef or seafood or other items because they're not going to be stopped. They're not going to be held accountable. So the police give up on going to those crimes because they know that it's not even get, going to get past the uh, probable cost. And you're saying that's what was happening in, yes. in Suffolk and then happening in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Well, with the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, that's a different story. I mean, okay, they, they but this is what you're yeah. saying Rachel Wallens implemented in Suffolk that didn't work. Didn't work. As a progressive idea. Okay, we are speaking with the District Attorney for the Northwestern District, Dave Sullivan. We're going to be right back. I want to ask the District Attorney about very serious crimes recently allegations in Chesterfield and East Hampton and Greenfield. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. How many great books have you read? What's the next great book you'll read? Find it at the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair, Saturday, June 17th. Ten bookstores, including Broadside. Thousands of books. A book browsing paradise. Yes, there's fiction. Yes, there's poetry. And children's books. First editions, limited editions, art books, signed books. For a book lover, it's an afternoon in book heaven. Join Broadside and ten more bookstores for the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair in the plaza behind Thorns, Saturday, June 17th, 11 to 6. What's the next great book you'll read? We finally entered into a more balanced real estate market. Hi, I'm Craig Delapena, a part of the Trailside team at the Murphy's Realtors. I've been helping buyers and sellers in our valley and beyond for close to 20 years. I specialize in homes near rail trails, as well as antique or historic homes. Together, we'll create a plan that gets you to the next chapter and will minimize your stress along the way. Visit NorthamptonRealtor.com slash innovator. 
Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with David Sullivan, who is the district attorney for the Northwestern District, which is comprised of Franklin and Hampshire counties. By the way, I think this is the only district in the state that has two counties. Is that right? Uh, Cape Cod and the Islands. Oh, so okay. they, that, that is a substantial amount of crime that happens out on Martha's Vineyard. And not Nantucket, so you know, <laughs> so they have two counties. I I know they're very busy with yachting problems <laughs> this time of year. It's starting to gear up. You you should have such problems. Yes, we should have such problems. Listen, District Attorney, I would like to ask you, and I uh, hesitate in some ways because the last thing I want to engender is a number of I can't really comment on that responses. Yes. But that said, we have had, uh, notwithstanding the discussion. Uh, that we just just had about uh, crime being down in our district. Um, a number of cases that have received significant publicity, and I'm wondering what you can tell us about the status of them and or anything else. Can we start with the uh, homicide, the East Hampton homicide case? Uh, I don't want to engender that. No comment, comment. So tell us what you can tell us. Um, uh, that, that happened uh, this past winter, and uh, there was an extensive investigation by the state police in East Hampton. De- there was a death. Yes, there was a death, yeah. And uh, uh, the person who passed away was the, uh, the male individual that lived in the apartment, and uh, he was uh, stabbed, and uh, as a result, he, uh, he passed away. So uh, there's an, uh, a situation um, and right now, as we looked at it, and as the grand jury looked at it, uh, it was a, an unjustified uh, killing. So we understand, looking at the c- circumstance, was it a domestic violence um, by him or by her and who initiated it, but uh, we looked at the force that was used, a knife, and uh, determined that it was unjustified killing. So you bring an indictment. You seek an indictment from the grand jury. Obviously, the case starts as a matter of just a a form in in the district court, and then uh, the the person is uh, brought to superior court on an indictment that you sought at the grand jury. Now what happens? Well, once it's indicted, it then becomes part of the court system. It's uh, the person's arraigned, which the charges are read. It lands in superior court, obviously, and their appointed counsel. I think he already had counsel, uh, I think, during the investigation, as I recall. Um, and then it'll just take the process. Probably about a year out, it'll, it'll go to jury trial or, uh, or a bench trial, depending on what the uh, defendant wants. So the case now, and it takes a year, and I guess people would be interested to know this, why does it take a year? Um, the def- for, for, yeah, a, a, I mean, year, a year from an arraignment yeah, to I mean, trial. You, you as a, a defense attorney know that... Um, you want to make sure you have all the information. You do your own investigation. You want to, you don't want to depend on us. Every answer that starts with the, from the district attorney, you as the defense attorney, know never ends well from my point. Oh, of view. okay. <laughs> you should know, but um, yeah, it just uh, it takes time, and I think a good defense counsel aren't in a rush 
to uh, go to trial because they want to make sure they have everything in hand, both the discovery that we have, but also any independent uh, investigation or, or to gain witnesses, to gain experts, whatever it may be. So that's usually the usually a year to year and a half. And this individual is uh, was released by the judge on fifty thousand dollars bail. So that individual right now um, has certain conditions of bail, but has been released and they'll be working with a defense attorney. Okay, let's turn our attention, if we could, please, to Chesterfield. What can you tell us? Uh, That was a very interesting case because at first glance, it was reported that it was a homicide, which it was. A homicide being an unjustified killing. Leaving aside, is it murder? Murder first degree, second degree, manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, something else? I mean, uh, homicide is a generic term, so. Yeah, and somebody died. You know, and uh, so what happened was that the individual um, that lived there, the young woman that lived there, or and her boyfriend, um, they had an intruder in the middle of the night, uninvited, uh, who came and uh, I believe was not there for good reasons, and went up the stairs. the The uh, boyfriend uh, heard some steps, came out. There was a, a real uh, for a better word, a Donnybrook. I mean, there were things being, they were wrestling, a lot of things. Eventually, there was a gun that was used against the intruder. and Two shots. Two shots. The first shot hit the torso. The person went down, um, and from what we understand, was not moving. Um, and he, he was bleeding heavily. Um, the individual, uh, Mr. Camp, who was the boyfriend, left the premises, his girlfriend was on 911. So much of what we know is because it was an open 911 call. And um, approximately eight to eight and a half minutes after the um, initial shot, there was a second shot. And that second shot, we determined, was not in self-defense. And so again, we left it to the grand jury. Was it a a first-degree homicide? Was it a manslaughter, which is sudden passion? And they determined that the best charge for this was manslaughter. So uh, that second shot um, was a shot that was unjustified. And so uh, he's being charged with manslaughter in Superior Court again. He was recently arraigned. And again, that's, that's in Hampshire County Superior Court? Yes. And now it's, So we may see a trial or a resolution of this case in a year? Yes. Give or take? Okay. As long as we have your district attorney, spend a few minutes with us on what happened, well, I guess in the last day or two, right? So... Talk to us. Well, I, I initially got a call about it about a half an hour after the incident. It was up this in Greenfield. Ca- this yeah. case in Greenfield, yeah, yes. In Greenfield, and there were two individuals that were in a mutual affray uh, that was out on, um, actually on the street, and it went against a car, so they were, um, they were fighting with each other. Apparently, there was uh, a gun, a clip of the gun that fell out, uh, but the police responded. So at this point... Uh, uh, one or both of those people are going to be arraigned on some type of charges. So um, I don't have the full story on it yet, but uh, again, it was very disturbing to the people in downtown Greenfield to see two people going at it and, you know, really, uh, you know, especially with a gun involved, that it could have been more serious. There was no gunshots fired, so. Thank, 
thank, thankfully. That said, the investigation that your office relies on is done by the local police, the Greenfield police, state police. Who investigates? Uh, in this case, it'll be the uh, the local police uh, that will be involved. They'll do the full investigation. Uh, if they need assistance, they could reach out to uh, our state police. But I think it'll probably be handled entirely by the Greenfield police. Okay, we're going to leave it there. We've been talking with the Northwestern District Attorney Dave Sullivan. Really just one other thing. I just want to yeah. tell the district attorney he doesn't know it, but he's now officially a member of the Talk the Talk Bar Association. We'll be sending you a card soon. Wonderful. Talk the Talk. The Bar Association. Well, we're going to have to have elected officers. We're going to see about this. We're going to see about this. We're not going to have any hatch act violations in terms of you no, getting, no. getting into this club. No, but no. you've been elected secretary. You'll be taking notes. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good, you know. But, uh, yeah, keep your nose clean, Bill. That's all I can say. <laughs> if you're the president, keep your nose clean. We leave right. it there. Well, we'll thanks right. for having me. Thank you, Dave. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Deerfield's Tilton Library renovation project has secured almost $500,000 in state funding for pandemic-related cost increases. Jones Library in Amherst will also be receiving funding of close to $1.7 million. Support from Senators Joe Comerford and Reps Natalie Blay and Mindy Dom helped make this funding happen. The request for the additional funds was approved by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners and finalized June 1st. There are about 25 homes in Colerain that are scrambling to find a way to dispose of their septic waste now that the Barnhart Cotton Bleaching Facility is shutting down. Senator Paul Mark. In the town of Colerain, there's about 25 households that their septic sewer system goes through the plant. And so the plant not operating its treatment plant anymore is going to cause a problem that could ultimately leave these 25 homes without any septic system. Mark says the town and sewer district were not prepared, so he's working alongside other legislators to secure $50,000 to conduct a study and come up with a more permanent plan. Educators at Gill Montague School District are scaling back on their duties by beginning work to rule. The association voted to begin this scaled back effort as a response to what they say is a failure to settle a fair contract by the Gill Montague School Committee. The GMEA and school committee have been conducting contract negotiations since March 2022. Partial sunshine this morning, mostly cloudy this afternoon with some scattered, mainly light showers, a high of 68 to 72. Chance for showers this evening, otherwise variable clouds, an overnight low of 46 to 52. Mostly cloudy, some more sprinkles and light showers on Thursday with a high of 64 to 68. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El ex vicepresidente Mike Pence presentó documentos el lunes declarando su campaña para presidente en 2024, desafiando a su ex jefe Donald Trump solo dos años después de que su tiempo en la Casa Blanca terminara con la insurrección en el Capitolio de Estados Unidos y la huida de Pence por su vida. Pence, el vicepresidente número 48 de la nación, lanzará formalmente su candidatura a la nominación republicana con un video y un evento de lanzamiento en Des Moines, Iowa el miércoles, que es su cumpleaños número 
164 según personas familiarizadas con sus planes. Hizo oficial su candidatura el lunes con la Comisión Federal de Elecciones. Opositor acérrimo del derecho al aborto, Pence apoya una prohibición nacional del procedimiento y ha hecho campaña contra las políticas que reafirman a las personas transgénero en las escuelas. Ha argumentado que los cambios en el Seguro Social y Medicare, como aumentar la edad de calificación, deberían estar sobre la mesa para mantener la solvencia de los programas, a lo que tanto Trump como DeSantis se han opuesto y criticó a DeSantis por su creciente disputa con Disney. En otras informaciones, el académico y activista progresista Cornel West anunció el lunes que se postulará para presidente el próximo año como candidato de un tercer partido, diciendo que quiere empoderar a las personas que han sido empujadas a los márgenes. En un video de Twitter, West dijo que se postulará como miembro del Partido Popular. West es un conocido erudito y autor negro y ex profesor en las universidades de Harvard y Princeton. En el sitio web de su campaña, West dice que quiere poner fin a las guerras, disolver la OTAN, perdonar todas las deudas estudiantiles, ampliar la seguridad social e invertir en energía limpia. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to our show Michael Clare, who is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies in the Nation Magazine's defense correspondent and prolific author on defense and national security issues. He has been with us regularly since before the Ukraine war started, and we really appreciate him for his insights and understanding and explanations about what is happening in the war and in other areas where there are potential wars. So much to ask you about today, Michael Clare. Let me start with what's the headlines everywhere, which is the destroyed dam in Ukraine, a new crisis, flooding imperiling towns. Experts think explosion was caused. Both sides blame the other. Ukrainians blame the Russians. The Russians blame the Ukrainians. Can you sort this out for us, please? So... But uh, can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you fine. Good. So, you know, I looked at all the evidence that's available to us and what other experts are saying, and I find it hard to believe that it's anything other than Russian, uh, Russian sabotage. First of all, the dam is under their control, so they're the ones who had access to the dam. Secondly, it looks like this was not a attack by a missile or external attack. It, it, this was a dam built to withstand a nuclear attack. So it had to be from within. The explosion had to be caused by explosives within the dam itself. And the Russians had control of the dam, so they were in a position to plant explosives. Nobody else was. So it looks like uh, they were in the best position to destroy the dam. But more importantly, I think they had the strongest motivation to do so at this moment. Uh, we know that the Ukrainians were on the, on the verge of, the Russians were on the verge, the, the, I'll start again, the, the, the Ukrainians were on the verge of mounting an offensive into Russian controlled territory of Ukraine. And 
th this area was was going to come under attack by the Ukrainians in all likelihood. And by flooding the river, uh, the Russians would theoretically make it more difficult for Ukraine to conduct a a uh, offensive in that area. So they had the strongest motive to flood to flood the area. So this was really a military operation, destroy the dam in order to make the downstream, if that's the correct word, uh, operations by the Ukrainian military impossible? That would be my, you know, my interpretation from a military perspective. I'm not saying that I have evidence that that's what happened, but that that would be the most likely explanation. Okay. And the consequence of this flooding, this destruction of the dam will be uh, mostly on civilians or mostly on the military. Sort that out. It's going to be on both. Now, obviously, there'll be widespread civilian destruction downstream of the of the dam burst. And there already has been dozens of villages have been flooded. People have had to evacuate. And the assumption is that uh, there have been loss of life. But this will be a mammoth environmental catastrophe. Uh, it's going to uh, flood farmlands and protected areas, and all of this muck is going to flow into the Black Sea. So it'll have lasting massive environmental consequences. And economic, consequ and economic consequences for Ukraine as well. Of course, uh, but they've already been, you know, this is adding on to that. But uh, what it's done is made the entire region in the Kherson region, uh, impossible. It'll make it impossible for motorized equipment to operate for a long time to come. And it, it was assumed that the Ukrainians were going to cross the uh, Dnipro River and attack Russian forces on the eastern side of the river, which is now flooded. So. Uh, this would make it much harder for a Ukrainian advance to occur. All right. That brings us to the next topic I really want to hear your judgment on, which is this much-anticipated counteroffensive by the Ukrainians. Does this destruction of the dam and its consequences put a significant obstacle? Is this a significant obstacle to the Ukrainians' much-anticipated counteroffensive? So we've been talking about this for a while, Bill, and uh, I don't think so. Uh, it, it might force the Ukrainians to reconsider the directions of their assault, but it's unclear where the main thrust was going to be in any case. So uh, I, I don't think this will have a big effect but but it, it it might force a delay. It might force them to reconsider the location of their forces, the main thrust of the counteroffensive. And what do you anticipate happening? I mean, we've been waiting for this, and there are these indications. There have been these probes. There have been some some increased fighting. But the major event, the sort of the uh, reverberations with uh, D-Day that we heard about yesterday. Well, that, yeah. that, that hasn't come to pass. No, and, uh, and 
Uh, who knows when that will occur? My my guess is it's within a matter of days, but who's to say? Uh, you know, the, the Ukrainians have been very, very good at subterfuge and deception. Uh, we've seen this in the past. They've uh, built up expectations about attacking at one place in one time, and then they attack somewhere else at a different time. And uh, so any, anybody who says they're going to attack at, at a certain time in a certain place, I think, is likely to be wrong. All of the talk has been that they're going to attack in the southeast to try to sever the land bridge between Crimea and the Donbass area that's been under Russian control since 2014, and that that would be the main thrust aimed at Melitopol uh, on the Sea of Above, and that would that would sever Russian supply lines to Crimea. I have a suspicion they may attack in the northeast from the Kharkiv region in the in the north towards Donetsk and and Luhansk. So that's that's a possibility. And in terms of achieving attainable military goals, what is it that the Ukrainian military is trying to achieve? Is it really trying to uh uh, bring Crimea back to Ukraine to establish control over Crimea again, or is there some other objective? My guess, my best guess is that the Ukrainian objective is to inflict a massive defeat on the Russian military to sort of break their ranks, to uh, to to inflict a a a crushing blow. That makes that that causes widespread collapse along the entire front. I, in, in other words, uh, right now Russia has built a defense line along 600 miles of border. So I think the the Ukrainian goal is to smash that front wherever it can, and to and, and to break break the lines and cause Russian retreats, widespread Russian retreats, and to make the Russian military uh, break from, from, uh, from casualties, but also from a collapse of morale. So, uh, so th their goal is to break the Russian military. So where exactly they strike is less important than uh, how effective they are in inflicting severe damage swiftly on the Russian military, which is why they've wanted to acquire all of this Western military, mobile tanks and art uh, mobile artillery and the like to, to make a blitzkrieg type attack. We are speaking with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, prolific author on national security issues. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to ask him about this sentence in Brett Stevens' op-ed, his opinion writer in The New York Times today, where he says, retaking Crimea will be hard, and even success will come with costs primarily in the form of population that aren't necessarily eager to be liberated by Kiev. We'll follow that up right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Push, push. Come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, who is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, who has been enlightening us about the war in Ukraine and Russia and China for a long time now, and we really appreciate these conversations. Michael Clare, I'd like to go to columnist Brett Stevens' piece in the Times today where he calls for all-out military victory, to summarize. Do you think that's possible? And do you think that is, in fact, Kiev's, that is, Ukraine's intention? First of all, I don't think an all-out victory is possible without uh, much greater Western support, including U.S. troops. Let's be honest here. Uh, the Ukrainians don't have the capacity to defeat Russia all on every possible front. They would need to the support of NATO, of, of the United States. Now, maybe that is the hidden agenda of many people uh, in New York City uh, or in Washington or in Cambridge who, uh, who harbor this hatred of Russia that's so deep that they want to drag the United States into this war, which I think would be an utter catastrophe. Uh, Ukraine itself does not possess the ability to defeat Russia on every conceivable front. I, I don't think that is Zelensky's goal. I think Zelensky's goal is to inflict so much damage on the Russian military that Putin will be forced to some kind of peace settlement which will 
uh, leave, uh, which will for, for, force Russia to abandon the territories it seized in February, beginning in February 20th, 2022, when the invasion began, and maybe to some kind of uh, future uh, elections in Crimea and, and the like, but not, not the total defeat of Russia. He knows better than that. Uh, that would a all-out war with Russia to the death would result in the utter destruction of Ukraine as well. That would be a catastrophe for everyone. So I think this is very unreasonable uh, conception from people behind the lines uh, in New York City to call for Ukraine to undertake such a massive plan. So you don't see you don't you don't see retaking Crimea as being realistic. I I that uh, bear in mind that Russians consider Crimea part of Russia and, and so that, and some Crimeans uh, do for sure, right? Yes, uh, and and so uh, right now Russian support for the war in Ukraine is tepid. But uh, if, if an attack on Crimea occurs, I think Putin would have the would be able to mobilize much more support than he has now. He could call up a new draft. Uh, he could mobilize more of society and maybe use nuclear weapons. That's my that's my fear because this would be considered attack on on the Russian heartland. Um, I, I think he has there's much less attachment to the territories that were seized uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, in the period after February 20th. So I think there is a difference. And I think it's a mistake for Americans to call on the Ukrainians to risk their lives for, for something that is likely to provoke such widespread destruction. Michael Clare, as this new offensive unfolds, we'll be speaking with you regularly, and I really appreciate that opportunity. While we have a few minutes left here, I would like to have your perspective on what is happening between the United States and China today, since that is a potential conflagration that is getting less attention than I think it deserves, and I think you think it's really important. So help us understand what's happening, please. Thank you, Bill. So this was a very busy weekend on that front. Uh, there was the annual meeting of the Shangri-La Conference in Singapore. This is a once a year meeting where defense ministers and the like meet to have a conversation on security affairs in Asia. And you had the US uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin gave a talk as did his equivalent, the Chinese uh, defense minister. And they were both very hardline talks. The U.S. defense secretary uh, made it very clear that the U.S. was not going to give up its drive to surround China with anti-Chinese alliances, you know, to beef up the alliance with South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Australia, through and the other other alliances the U.S. has been building to contain China, which the Chinese find very threatening. And the Chinese warned that if the U.S. continues to arm Taiwan, 
and to try to pull Taiwan away from China, that this could very likely lead to war. And just to make clear that we're, what, what, what we're talking about here, there was a near collision between US and Chinese warships in the, in the Taiwan Strait, the water separating China from Taiwan, where a war would break out. So they're making very clear that uh, what we're talking about, that a war could break out at any moment when these clashes occur. So there's no sign on either side of backing away from a very harsh confrontational position around Taiwan. And the solution is in half a minute? Well, in half a minute, I think uh, both sides, but beginning with the U.S., have to say that uh, confrontation, uh, that, that war is not the solution to these issues and that building up and preparing for war is going to invite one. That history shows that, that this kind of confrontational behavior leads to, creates the, con the conditions it's meant to avoid and usually results in war. So we really have to change our policies. We're going to leave it there for the moment. Michael Clare, thank you so much for being with it. Which we really with us. We really appreciate your time and expertise and insights. You are a valuable, valuable resource to all of us here in Western Massachusetts and across the nation. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, everyone. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home addition? Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information WHMP and the Northampton, WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, whmp.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Monica Ricks in New York. Experts are warning millions of people right now in more than a dozen states to avoid going outside today as smoke from Canadian wildfires keeps spreading. CBS's Cammie McCormick has the latest. In New York and Washington, D.C., public schools are opened, but outdoor activities canceled. The smoke has created dangerous conditions for those with underlying health conditions. And even for those who are healthy, officials are advising people not to spend much time outdoors and mask up when they do. Smoke's also causing air quality issues in the Midwest and as far south as South Carolina. 
Five days after a mother of four was allegedly gunned down by her neighbor, police have finally made an arrest in Florida. Police in Ocala, Florida, say 58-year-old Susan Lawrence, who is white, allegedly fired through the front door of her neighbor's house, killing 35-year-old A.J. Owens, who was black. Marion County Sheriff Billy Woods on the investigation. We want to ensure that what we present, that justice is served all the way through the courts and that the individual gets what they deserve. Lawrence is facing charges including manslaughter with a firearm. Jim Crisula, CBS News. Pope Francis is back in the hospital today. CBS's Tina Krause tells us he's undergoing intestinal surgery. Aides say the 86-year-old pontiff will be put under general anesthesia for the operation at Gemelli Hospital in Rome and will be hospitalized for several days. In London, Prince Harry's back in the hot seat for a second day at his phone hacking trial. CBS's Vicki Barker is there. The picture Prince Harry has painted on the stand is of a life blighted from childhood onward by invasive press attention. His first serious relationship ended in large part, he said, because so many intimate details ended up in the tabloids. If Harry failed fails to prove those details were obtained illegally, his testimony just might lead to some soul-searching at those tabloids. Former Vice President Mike Pence announced today he's running for president in 2024, essentially pitting himself against his former boss. Here's CBS's Robert Costa. Ever since Pence was pressured by Trump to try to overturn the 2020 election. I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. And face threats during the January 6 attack on the Capitol. Their one strong alliance has increasingly become a rivalry. Right now, Trump is the Republican frontrunner. CNN CEO is out. Chris Licht led the network for a little over a year, but his tenure has been marred by slumping ratings and controversies, including coverage of a Donald Trump town hall. Licht also shut down CNN's streaming service, cut hundreds of jobs, and fired Don Lemon last month. Still no word on who will replace him. This is CBS News. Hiring is a lot easier with Indeed. Their powerful platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. There are few things in life that people get as emotional over than their finances, and that can be very dangerous when it comes to your investments. This is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst. Did you know investors lose money every year because they trade on emotions, headlines, and hearsay instead of data? But there's a solution. Stockcharts.com. Stockcharts.com has been the leading online charting tool that experts and disciplined traders have used for over 20 years. By utilizing the most advanced online charts, they're able to view and understand market history and investor sentiment by using technical analysis to manage their risk and find opportunities. You can do the same. Go to stockcharts.com for a free 30-day trial, pick the stocks and indexes you want to track, review historical data, spot the trends, then make informed decisions and invest with confidence. You'll also have access to a knowledge bank from leading global analysts on how to interpret an ever-changing market. Better insights for smarter investing. Go to stockcharts.com and start your free 30-day for WHMB News, I'm Jess Tyler. Deerfield's Tilton Library renovation project has secured almost $500,000 in state funding for pandemic-related cost increases. Jones Library and Amherst will also be receiving funding of close to $1.7 million. Support from Senators Joe Comerford and Reps Natalie Blay and Mindy Dom helped make this funding happen. The request for the additional funds was approved by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners and finalized June 1st. There are about 25 homes in Colerain that are scrambling to find a way to dispose of their septic waste now that the Barnhart Cotton Bleaching Facility is shutting down. Senator Paul Mark. In the town of Colerain, there's about 25 households that 
their septic sewer system goes through the plant. And so the plant not operating its treatment plant anymore is going to cause a problem that could ultimately leave these 25 homes without any septic system. Mark says the town and sewer district were not prepared, so he's working alongside other legislators to secure $50,000 to conduct a study and come up with a more permanent plan. Educators at Gil Montague School District are scaling back on their duties by beginning work to rule. The association voted to begin this scaled-back effort as a response to what they say is a failure to settle a fair contract by the Gil Montague School Committee. The GMEA and school committee have been conducting contract negotiations since March 2022. Partial sunshine this morning, mostly cloudy this afternoon with some scattered, mainly light showers, a high of 68 to 72. Chance for showers this evening, otherwise variable clouds, an overnight low of 46 to 52. Mostly cloudy, some more sprinkles and light showers on Thursday with a high of 64 to 68. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, we are very fortunate today. We have three community regional leaders in the affordable housing universe. Um, affordable housing has been on the front pages where it deserves to be. The governor, even in her inauguration speech, talked about the importance of affordable housing. It's been the subject of legislative uh, concerns. And right now there is a bill... Uh, before the legislature, it, it, it intends to uh, have a transfer fee between a half a percent and two percent on all real estate transactions above $1 million. And if communities lack sales above $1 million, there is a formula by which there would still be fees. Those fees would go to affordable housing and preservation. We are very fortunate to have in the studio with us the president and CEO of Wayfinders, Keith Ferry. The executive director, Alexis Breitenacher of Valley Community Development, and executive director, Gina Govoni of the Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority. And I wanted to start with you, Gina. I wanted to ask you about this um, transfer fee. Bill was asking just before we went on, will this uh, fee, if it is in fact, uh, if this bill is enacted by the legislature and signed by the governor, would it have a substantial impact on affordable housing in this region? So it certainly could. I think that the important thing about the bill as it's been crafted is that it gives communities flexibility and there's also a way that communities could work regionally to pool funds to build affordable housing. So one of the ways in which it's flexible is that the, the medium price, the medium home, home sale price upon out, above which the fee could be levied could be set locally. So it could be set to the median price in Hampshire County or Franklin County or, or therein, rather than the, the higher prices that you're hearing about for the Cape and the islands and, and the Eastern uh, mass market. What I really think the, the, um, this, the important thing about looking at the school of funds is that it's not pulling on additional state funds. It's really looking at the wealth that's being generated in the real estate industry right now and trying to retain some of that in our local communities for the creation of affordable housing rather than see it go into, I hate to say this, but realtor fees. Mm. 
I, I wanted to turn to Keith Ferry. Uh, Keith, as the president and CEO of Wayfinders, um, what is the importance of developing affordable housing in our communities? Well, I think the importance of developing affordable housing is really about creating um, communities of inclusion for all of the people we need here in the Pioneer Valley to be, have an equitable and thriving region. Uh, today, um, we know that uh, more than half of our renters are cost burdened, meaning they're paying more than 30% of their income for their rent. And one in four renter households are paying more than 50% of their income for their rent. What should they be paying as a percentage of their income? I think when you think about uh, what people should be paying, it should be under that 30% uh, bar, especially now as, we, as everything costs more now, right? It's not just their housing is costing more, but you know, it's, it's uh, the groceries are costing more. Uh, the electricity is costing more. And, uh, and that's putting a lot of stress on household budgets, creating housing instability for people. And for many people uh, in our region and across the Commonwealth, actually, people are wondering, is this the place I want to be? Mm. Um, and so there are people who don't have a choice and must can't, don't, can't, aren't as mobile. But people who are mobile and are looking at kind of the cost of what it is, is to stay in Massachusetts today, with the cost of housing increasing, with the cost of other goods, they're looking to other markets. And so we are seeing people leave the Commonwealth. Uh, and in fact, according to a, a Mass Inc. report that was released last June, there's a projection that you could see um, hundreds of thousands of college-educated people leave the Commonwealth, uh, more than 200,000 in the, in, the um, in the next decade. Uh, that's not a recipe for growth. That's not a recipe for success. That's not a rec recipe for kind of inclusive uh, communities that we want to have. So I, I think that's the importance of affordable housing, affordable to people who are at the lowest incomes, affordable to people who are at moderate and median incomes are essential for us to have thriving communities. Hmm. That is so well said. Um, Executive Director Alex Breitniker of the Valley Community Development, you, um, before the show, we talked a little bit about uh, one of the barriers for affordable housing development in our communities is people being, I, 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 I shudder at the word, protective of the neighborhoods that they live in, protective in a way that they want to preserve and protect the image of the neighborhood that they want to hold on to. Could you speak to that? Sure. I think, you know, as Keith was just saying, there's a, a challenge with money and there's a challenge with um, affordability and how much things cost. But the, the other side of it is all of the money in the world, maybe, uh, maybe not all the money in the world, but a lot of the money in the world will not fix the affordable housing crisis if we're not able to build more housing. There's an issue with the number of people who need affordable housing and the availability of units or homes for people. Um, and part of the barrier to increasing the number of units is that people don't want their neighborhoods to change. And a lot of folks who have lived in a neighborhood for you know, sometimes generations, you know, they, they live there, they feel ownership over it as they should. So when you're trying to do infill projects, say, in more urban environments, um, there's opposition to it because it's change. And, you know, what we, we talk about this all the time in my office is like, what's the, what's the thing? Like, why are people so concerned about change? And, you know, I think there's a lot of like fear around it, like fear of the unknown. People are scared of things that they don't know what it's going to look like. So, Often you um, assume or people may assume that if you're building affordable housing, it's going to bring a colossal change to their neighborhood. And one of the stories we like to talk about actually has to do with the lumber yard, which Wayfinders built and our office is in. Um, it's in downtown Northampton on Pleasant Street. And there was huge opposition from the neighborhood about, you know, 
increase in traffic. Like there's going to be more cars parking on my street because we, you know, there weren't enough ne <clears throat> necessarily enough spaces in the parking lot for the number of potential tenants. And you know, there's going to be p more people outside. There's going to be more people on the sidewalks. Like how is that going to change the neighborhood? And months after the building was fully leased up, people would come in and say, like, when are the tenants moving in? We haven't mm -hmm. seen anybody. And we're like, they've been here for months. Like it doesn't, the like fears are unfounded, but getting past the fears into a place where people feel comfortable with change can take a lot of effort. And I know Keith has experience with this. I'm wondering what you want to say. Indeed. I mean, I think that um, uh, lumberyard example plays out across uh, the region in our experience. Uh, we are ju we just got awarded funding in uh, Ludlow, Massachusetts for a project. We Wayfinders. Wayfinders. Uh, to create uh, 40 units of affordable housing in Ludlow. Uh, so we're very grateful to the state for that. And to, um, but I will tell you that uh, that was not easy. And we got, um, it, it, we got community opposition. Um, and um, that community opposition uh, included um, the um, local uh, officials putting unworkable conditions on our permits. And so we had to then appeal that to the Housing uh, Appeals uh, Committee in the state. We have an uh, appeals process for projects that are going under, uh, uh, in certain cases, you can go to. And it took us two years, but we won. Uh, and we were able to move the project forward without the unworkable conditions that were put on our permits. But that cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. And two years. And two years, right? Um, and That's two I, I would, years that people weren't able to live somewhere. I would say, and I, I'm probably understating it, hundreds of thousands of dollars, because we haven't gone out and got the final cost estimates, and we know that the cost of everything has gone up significantly during that time. I would say um, it's going to be bigger than hundreds of thousands of dollars in the end. And so, yes, uh, people who are in need, and we know every day that there are people in need across the region. I was just talking to a group last night about the number of uh, people who have come to Wayfinders for emergency rental assistance over the last um, over the last three years during COVID, we put out $150 million of emergency rental assistance to, to households in the Pioneer Valley. In every community, it's up. So here in Northampton, that number was something like $1.7 million. In, in, um, in uh, Amherst, it was like $1.7 million. In Hadley, about $1.7 million. Pre-COVID, those numbers uh, were in the, the tens of thousands, but not in the millions. Uh, and so, uh, and we weren't helping uh, hundreds of households. We were helping a handful. So the the crisis is is real. And when we when we delay these projects, um, we there are real implications. Uh, I want to say one other thing to to Alexis's point about um, change. Yes, change. Everyone has challenges with change, one way or the other. Um, and I think. Um, uh, we often meet uh, change people who don't want change, and they come up. We, they create reasons, and sometimes those reasons are, uh, you know, veiled issues around classism, veiled issues around racism, um, and uh, I think in our communities here in the Pioneer Valley, I think people generally are the culture here is is to be the opposite of that, and so if we want to live into those values, we have to live into being inclusive and in when we think about the the housing landscape. Um, Keith Ferry, I. I and Alexis Breitnecker, you both, uh, as leaders in this in this region, for the affordable housing need, you've both articulated what the problem is. I'm wondering what the solution, Gina Gavoni, of the Franklin uh, County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority, how do we break people's pattern of being afraid of change in their neighborhoods such that they welcome newcomers, welcome people into affordable housing 
do you see yeah, a solution to I, this? Well, you know, it, it's 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 not an easy answer, but I think that one of the things that all three of our organizations uh, pride ourselves on doing, in addition to developing housing, is really working as an intermediary to try to uh, figure out what are the community needs, what are the concerns, and what 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 are the what are the real needs in terms of housing. And I think that oftentimes there's a mismatch between what people believe is needed and what is really needed in terms of affordability. One of the issues we see right now in Franklin County is a drastically declining population and a lot of folks aren't moving in and, and it's, a, it's a huge problem. And this is not something that is going to be just solved by folks, you know, moving a couple of folks moving here and there and, and you know, building one house at a time. We need to build homes more quickly and work with communities to make sure that we're bringing in younger people and households with children to to continue our communities so that we don't face obsolescence in this part of the state. Mm. So I think that sort of building that 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 bridge um, and and trying to to create a space for that conversation and that awareness, as, as Keith was saying, around around what the what the true issues are, um, is is a big part of what we can do here. Uh, Jana, I saw a piece on uh, PBS NewsHour yesterday where the housing crisis in Los Angeles was featured, and the mayor was on. And what she said is, we're going to build a massive amount of new housing so that the unhoused have places to live. And it's going to happen relatively quickly. And there has been a change here because people in Los Angeles, as between having people living on the streets and having affordable housing built where it can be built, people's attitudes are changing because the former is just unacceptable for many, many reasons. And I'm wondering whether that is something, that kind of change, that sea change, is something that you experience and or anticipate in your work to try to house people without housing. To some degree, yes, and we have to remember that Massachusetts is a right to shelter state and we do not want to see families and individuals in mass lining our streets here. Getting the resources to affect that change is, is, another, is another part of the puzzle. You know, you mentioned the uh, transfer fee earlier. That, is, that, is, that can be a part of the solution, but it's only one part of the solution. Getting communities on board to support this change because of the way that we we zone our land here in Massachusetts, which is very, very local, it, it needs to happen at all levels. And if I could add to, to Gina's uh, points there, I think what we're seeing in communities that's different than it was a, a decade ago here is everybody's talking about housing. Um, and it's, it is, yes, it is concern for people who are unhoused. It is concern for uh, seniors who can't find housing options that they would like in the community. It's concern for uh, young people who are trying to start households and can't find affordable options in the community. So uh, it's concern for people leaving the region and employers not being able to find people to work for them that have the skills that they need. So I feel like the conversation, yes, it's about those who have the least, but it's also a, a broader conversation today and that's why um, you know, all of us are, I know, getting called and engaged by different types of organizations than we normally would be. Uh, so yesterday uh, evening, I was at the League of Women Voters here talking about housing. 
um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got called by a bunch of credit unions around here who wanted to talk about how they could be part of the solution. Um, a few weeks before that, I got called by a bunch of reform rabbis from across the state of Massachusetts who wanted to know if they should take up housing as an advocacy issue. And so I feel like there is a, uh, an emerging groundswell of support for thinking about how we solve our housing challenges differently from unusual suspects. Um, so I think that's a really important thing to think about. And, and, and employers are coming forward. I was at the Western Massachusetts Economic Development Council annual meeting. And what are they talking about? Yes, we need to grow uh, jobs, but we, we're not going to be able to do that without adequate housing for employers who are bringing jobs here or uh, are trying to grow their workforce and attract uh, employees here. So that's, that's an issue that is, um, yes, for the unhoused, uh, but is a, a larger economic issue for our region. And we're going to look at that larger economic issue for our region uh, right after these messages. We are talking to the leaders of Wayfinders, Valley Community Development, and Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. Every month across the Pioneer Valley, one in three families struggles to buy diapers. That's why the Northampton Radio Group is teaming with the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region in support of their annual diaper drive. Stop by the United Way of Franklin and Hampshire region offices in Northampton and Greenfield or at any Leo Auto Group dealership on King Street and donate diapers throughout the month of June. By donating to the diaper drive, you can help keep area children healthy and families secure. This message brought to you by the Leo Auto Group, the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region, Region and the Northampton Radio Group. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation about affordable housing. You know, sometimes our eyes glaze over when we hear the term, but really what we're talking about is improving the quality of the communities that we all live in. And with us is Executive Director 
Alex Breitenacker of the Valley Community Development. Could you tell us a little bit about Valley Community Development and what it does? Sure thing. So Valley Community Development is in its 35th year of th- serving the Pioneer Valley through sort of three main areas. We do affordable home, home ownership, so first-time homebuyer support. We do affordable housing development, and we own affordable housing in the communities of Northampton and Amherst. And we do small business support, particularly for folks that are five um, employees or less. And um, we tend to work mostly in Hampshire County, but we really do serve the whole of Pioneer Valley, and that has expanded since COVID. And Keith, fairly, fairy, you are uh, with Wayfinders, which used to be the housing allowance program, I think. So That's tell right. us about Wayfinders. Sure. Wayfinders is uh, just over 50 years old now. And as uh, Buzz mentioned, we were founded as the Housing Allowance Project, but uh, we changed our name a few years ago. We work across the housing continuum from homelessness to home ownership. So that means we provide emergency shelter for families. Uh, we also develop, manage, and own housing throughout um, the region. Uh, we provide programs for the state of Massachusetts in the region, including uh, uh, rental assistance, emergency rental assistance, uh, we do uh, workforce supports. We also work with people to become homeowners and work uh, with uh, some homeowners who are challenged with foreclosure to prevent that. Uh, and then we do work around uh, small business development through our CDFI Common Capital. Uh, and uh, and we provide support to other organizations who are trying to develop affordable housing. So, so people who want to find out more about Wayfinders or support your your uh, program, uh, how do they get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, we have a, a great website, wayfinders.org, uh, one word, and that's a, that, that is a place to get in contact, or you can call us at uh, 413-233-1500. Uh, wayfinders.org. And, and how about for Valley Community Development, Alex? How do people contact you? Valleycdc.org. And can they support your work? How do they support Absolutely. your Absolutely. So folks can donate, and Keith and I both are able to participate in this really exciting tax credit program through the state, which I will not go into because it might bore folks to tears. But (laughs) if you want to learn more about it, please visit our website. It's far more exciting than boring, but we don't have the time to really go into it. But uh, Gina Gavoni, the Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority, what do you do and how do people contact you? Sure. Well, we are um, we are first and foremost a public housing authority, um, but that is just one um, aspect of our our identity. So we, we run public housing, we offer the Section 8 program, but we also manage private housing. And through our uh, nonprofit affiliate, Rural Development Inc., we develop housing. So folks who want to get in touch with us, the best way is through our main website, which is fdrhra.org. That's fdrhra.org. It's an incredibly long acronym, but um, hopefully folks can find that. Keith, let me ask you this. I, I hear a lot about... Um, uh, declining population in this in Western Massachusetts in this region in particular, I hear a lot about declining enrollment in schools. Is this a, is promoting affordable housing a way to, pro, to promote a solution to those kinds of problems? Um, it is. Uh, you know, when we think about affordable housing, it's creating more options for people who are here, and then it's creating options to attract people to to the region. And attracting to the people to the region is important for our long term health. As we look at our population throughout the Pioneer Valley, it's aging. And that means people, as they age, one of the great things is they're aging and they're living longer and living healthier. Uh, Many people are staying in their homes, and so they're not freeing up those homes for other families to move into. They're also leaving the workforce, right? And so uh, throughout the the Commonwealth, we are seeing a decline in our workforce. Uh, And that is um, 
that's concerning. That that concerning because you may not be able to find somebody to work for you. And we all, I know, are challenged to find people to work for us. We all have open positions, undoubtedly, right now. Um, we all you're talking about the three of your the three, yeah. our three yes. organizations. We are yeah. we are you're not talking about you need a plumber at home and you can't <laughs> find one. But that, we are that, also that talking might about also be that true. too. And that's also <laughs> gonna drive up the cost of construction here in in the region as well, which is already quite high, uh, exponentially higher than it was pre pandemic, where um, there are those uh, skills are in high demand. There's a lot of resources flowing from uh, different federal actions that have taken place. And um, and it becomes very competitive to find um, um, uh, quality uh, people to work on your projects sometimes, and and that and it's, and that's uh, driving up the cost of things. So we're talking, but yes, I was originally talking about even people to work for our organizations uh, and people to work for partnering organizations throughout the region. But it's not just a nonprofit issue; it's in all of the uh, businesses here. If you were to have the the head of Big Y in here. Or you'd go to you you go to, to Amherst right now and you'll see signs posted around um, uh, for UMass trying to hire people. They have thousands of jobs open, okay, mm-hmm. hundreds of jobs, maybe not thousands, hundreds of jobs open, um, and um, that's an issue because we have a declining workforce. And so, if we want to attract people to the, for that workforce, if we want to retain the workforce we have, we have to have a quality housing ladder for people. Yes, affordable now, but that home ownership opportunity you can move up into, or that um, that uh, apartment you can downsize into when your family size changes and you don't need that big house anymore. We don't have those options, and we need to create them to, to be viable. And for those people who are unhoused, um, we need to create a pathway that is much better than the one we have now, which is about transitional housing, which is really expensive. Wow, Alex, um, in terms of Valley Community Development. We we hear we keep hearing all these problems. I know where I live. There are so many children who are raised in the region that they can't afford to stay in the region. They end up leaving. What do you do to solve that problem? Really? I mean, I think it goes back to what we've all been talking about, which is creating more housing. So we're um, actively building uh, something in Amherst right now that hopefully we do- will be done in the end of August. Though, as Keith and Gina both know, construction delays could change that. Um, but one of the big impetuses be- behind building and behind Amherst's support of affordable housing creation is that folks who grew up in the community went away for college or went away for a job and they try to come back and they cannot live there because it is unaffordable. So talking about what Keith just mentioned, you know, the lack of the housing ladder, there've been countless articles in the newspaper recently about the lack of starter homes. So we run a first time home buyer program and Pre-pandemic, you know, people would come through the program. They would be able to close on a house within, say, maybe six months of going through the program. Now we have folks that um, take it, look for three years, can't find something. Their their certificate expires. They have to come back and retake the program because there is nothing on the market right now, particularly in Hampshire County, that qualifies as a starting home. And with interest rates going up, you know, what someone could afford at the three hundred thousand dollar you know, price point now is unaffordable to them. And this this conversation deserves hours, not minutes. Um, but I think what I'd like to do is, Gina Gavoni, I'd like to end it this way. Can you tell us about a recent success of the Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority? Sure. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit just to follow up on what Alex is talking about with home ownership. Um, you know, we have a rural homes pilot program and we're looking at taking a home that has been offline um, for over 10 years now in a great little neighborhood in Greenfield and re- in rehabbing that and, and then selling it at an affordable price 
to a first-time homebuyer. This is a brand-new initiative for us, and it's something that we're, we're grateful to be embarking on this year. It's, it's work that we haven't done, this, this type of homeownership work, in, in many years because of the economy. But it is, it is very exciting. And I think one by one, each community needs a variety of strategies. So we need housing in, for rental, but we need homeownership. We need that ladder, as Keith was saying, to just give folks the opportunity to live and continue to grow and change in the communities that they live in. There is hope. It's such an important issue. We should all be paying attention to it. We're also grateful that Wayfinders is here, that Valley Community Development is here, that Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority is here. I want to thank you, Keith Ferry. Thank you, Alex Breitniker. And thank you, Gina Gavoni. Thanks for all that you do. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Deerfield's Tilton Library renovation project has secured almost $500,000 in state funding for pandemic-related cost increases. Jones Library in Amherst will also be receiving funding of close to $1.7 million. Support from Senators Joe Comerford and Reps Natalie Blay and Mindy Dom helped make this funding happen. The request for the additional funds was approved by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners and finalized June 1st. There are about 25 homes in Colerain that are scrambling to find a way to dispose of their septic waste now that the Barnhart Cotton Bleaching Facility is shutting down. Senator Paul Mark. In the town of Colerain, there's about 25 households that their septic sewer system goes through the plant. And so the plant not operating its treatment plant anymore is going to cause a problem that could ultimately leave these 25 homes without any septic system. Mark says the town and sewer district were not prepared, so he's working alongside other legislators to secure $50,000 to conduct a study and come up with a more permanent plan. Educators at Gill Montague School District are scaling back on their duties by beginning work to rule. The association voted to begin this scaled back effort as a response to what they say is a failure to settle a fair contract by the Gill Montague School Committee. The GMEA and school committee have been conducting contract negotiations since March 2022. Partial sunshine this morning, mostly cloudy this afternoon with some scattered, mainly light showers, a high of 68 to 72. Chance for showers this evening, otherwise variable clouds, an overnight low of 46 to 52. Mostly cloudy, some more sprinkles and light showers on Thursday with a high of 64 to 68. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin Counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate, you don't want a heavy hand. 
Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015-1400, we are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. I, you know, last year my wife, Marcine, and I went to see a concert. It was, um, it was sponsored by, produced by Conway Fine Arts. It was in the Congregational Church, our beloved little um, performing arts place here in Ashfield, Massachusetts. And there was this extraordinary cellist who filled the room with um, sounds which uh, I could only call magnificent. I think his name is Ignatius Geizomovich. And uh, then Jeffrey Baker and then Michaela Rain were uh, promoting and presenting this incredible concert. Um, since then, they got married in the fall. They both have a new last name, Archambault, which came from I don't know where. But they are Conway Fine Arts, and there's really something. Anybody who wants to be busy this weekend um, uh, on the cultural end of things, please pay attention to what you're about to hear about. There are three really wonderful events that are happening. Uh, they are called the West by Northwest New England Festival, and you're, we're about to learn more about them. I want to start with you, Jeffrey. Welcome to the show. Morning, Buzz. Thanks so much for having me and Michaela in today. We're so glad to have you. This is the second time we've had you in, and um, I just love what you do. Why don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit about Conway Fine Arts? Well, Conway Fine Arts is all about bringing music, dance, and drama to our area, our beautiful neck of the woods in western Massachusetts. And Michaela and I believe very passionately in what we do. And would you like to talk about that a little bit, Michaela? Sure. Yeah. Hi, Buzz. Good morning. Um, yeah. So we we both come from artistic backgrounds, and we just feel that the arts are important to have, not just in the big cities, not just you know where you would kind of expect them, but really everywhere. Um, and when we moved here, we found that there are excellent, professional, high quality artists right here, and like yourselves. Yes. Yes. So why not bring them together? Why not create opportunity and why not add to the richness of our community by making sure that they can be heard and that we we have access to this, you know, all year long and all the time. I understand it in terms of musicians, but you've decided somehow to marry music with dance, with drama. Could could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So we had originally started out as chamber music, um, primarily, and I think that's still at the core of what we do. Um, but I actually have a background in ballet. I trained and danced professionally for a very short period, and so that was always near and dear to my heart. And so, you know, we're going into our second year, and as we were discussing, what what do we really want this thing to be? 
um, certainly more than a series, certainly more than performances. We want to bring in education and everything. And in those conversations, I think we realized that we get our inspiration when we're open to and exploring all of the performing arts. They work together and they're sort of dependent on each other. And when you bring all of that richness together, it really, I think, makes something very special. So we wanted to make sure to include all of that um, in our organization. So, Michaela Archambault, talk to us a little bit about what this weekend's offerings uh, is going to be. Absolutely. It's got a little bit of everything. Um, we are starting off Friday night in Asheville at 7 o'clock, and that program will include um, a couple of pieces that I'll let Jeffrey talk about in a bit, but they're all based on folk songs from around the world. Um, that has provided a lot of material for many different composers over the years, um, and so we're bringing some of that material together. Um, we'll also have a dear friend of mine and wonderful actress, Laura Zawarski, uh, doing some storytelling. So we've got some Native American folk stories. We've got some gypsy folk stories um, and some other surprises in there as well. So and that's, that's 7 o'clock at the Congregational Church in Ashfield, right in the center of that's Ashfield. That's correct, yes. Yeah. And um, what's going to happen on Saturday? On Saturday, we're going to be at Three Sisters Sanctuary, which if you haven't been there, it is Crazy place in Goshen. Spectacular. Yeah, yes. right on 112. Exactly. Um, and I will be kicking us off there with a movement workshop for kids. So I'll be playing some of the tunes from the Bartok uh, that you'll be hearing as part of the program and inviting kids to, to move and experience that music kind of in this very direct way. Um, so that'll happen at 4.30 at Three Sisters Sanctuary, and then families can bring a little picnic if they want to. Um, and then the concert will happen at 6.30, and that will be a couple of repeats from Friday night in case you, know, you want to hear them again. I would... Every live performance is different, so I would definitely recommend that, um, as well as some other new pieces. Um, so it will be a different program. Um, and then we have some other kind of folk stories that we're working on. That's, that's at the uh, beautiful and mysterious Three Sisters Sanctuary. That, uh, it's Saturday at 6, unless you have kids that are going to participate in the movement thing. That's at 4.30, you said? That's correct. What age kids are we talking about? 5 to 10. Great, great. And Sunday? And Sunday, we're at Hawks and Reed, um, another place that we just love performing. In Greenfield? In Greenfield, yes. Again, right on the main drag. Um, and for that one, we have at 4.30? 4.30. At 4.30 before the show, we have a friend of ours doing a wine and cheese tasting. Um, he grew up in France and just has this incredible background kind of growing up around all of this, and it's been such an integral part of his life. Um, and so we'll have four different wines for everyone to try as part of a tasting, as well as kind of a whole array of cheese and charcuterie. Um, and so that should get everybody nice and kind of warmed up for the concert that will start at 6.30 there. But there's also a discussion with Laura and you and Jeffrey and Alexander Pazmandi, right? Yes, exactly. There's so much material. I skip over bits and pieces of it. But yes, um, as part of the wine and cheese pairing, there will be a Q&A session. So if anyone has questions, wants to know what it's like to put something like this together, that would be a great time to come and ask those questions. And then at 6.30, following that reception, um, there's going to be music. What's, what's, what's on the program then at Hawks and Reed? Sunday night, our emphasis is on blues and spirituals, but we have a little bit of everything. So each night is different, but Sunday night, we're playing the entire Haydn String Quartet, which is just brilliant, as well as all four of Florence Price's Negro Spirituals in Counterpoint, as well as Gershwin's Lullaby for String Quartet. 
Talk about eclectic. Over the course of the weekend, there is a little bit for everybody, isn't there? Absolutely. So how, who actually arranges music? Who decided what's going to be played? Well, I am the artistic director, but as I like to say, I just work here. Michaela's in charge. <laughs> Saturday night, the focus is a bit more on the Roma and Gypsy tradition, and we're doing the Bartok Romanian folk dances and the Haydn Quartet then as well, which is inspired from some of those gypsy melodies. Friday night has more of a focus on Native American folk song. We have some brilliant music there with folk tunes from the Chippewa and Inuit traditions. And as well, every night we have narrative and verse with Laura Zawarski, who's an amazing actor, relating to those traditions. So Native American, Friday... Roma, Gypsy, Saturday, and Poetry of Langston Hughes, Sunday, as well as Virginia Woolf's The String Quartet. Just sounds like an incredible festival, spanning three days, all local to our region. It's, it really sounds wonderful. I see that you have an instrument on your lap right there. What is that instrument? This is my viola. I can't wait. Are we going to be graced with some sound in the studio? I'd be happy to play a few folk songs from this weekend's concert. I can't wait. We're going to take a break now, so when we come back, we can hear uh, Jeffrey Archambault and his viola. I can't wait. Sounds good. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th. Be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the Co-op. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with Jeffrey and Michaela Archambault. They are the principals in Conway Fine Arts. And this weekend, it just sounds incredible, from Friday through Sunday, the West by Northwest New England Festival 
is sponsored by Conway Fine Arts. They have developed a program. It's going to be in the Ashfield Congregational Church on Friday night. On Saturday, it is going to be in Goshen at the Three Sisters Sanctuary, and it's going to be at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield on Sunday. We'll leave you with more details. Uh, you can find out more details. You could get tickets at ConwayFineArts.com or at those locations. So, Jeffrey, you, uh, you have your viola in hand. I am so grateful that you brought it. <laughs> it's a real treat. Tell us what we're about to hear. Well, I would like to play three very short excerpts. I'd like to start off with a little Bach, because what morning doesn't start well with a little Bach? And then I'd like to play the spiritual folk songs from Florence Price's Negro Folk Songs and Counterpoint. These are, these are originally spirituals from the, from the American South. Please. fills the air in such a beautiful and resonant way. So what other musicians will we be here encountering this weekend at the festival? Well, it's a string quartet with three wonderful colleagues from the area. Allison Michael is a Greenfield resident and a fantastic violinist. Kyla Grafe lives in Amherst and is also playing violin, and she's wonderful. And then you mentioned him before, but the name might have been a little more opaque when you said it. His name's Ignacy Gaidamovich. Forgive me. I, I hate to be at this. I just <laughs> and he's trouble. playing cello for us. There you go. And we, I've heard him play cello, and he, too, he fills not only the room, he fills your soul. Absolutely. Uh, when, he, when he plays. So, Michaela, tell us, uh, we have so much culture in this region here. What is it that Conway Fine Arts brings us that we can't get elsewhere? I think for one, it's really the bringing together of music and dance and theater in sort of these, uh, what I hope people find very interesting ways that sort of open up maybe some of the disciplines that they that they haven't had as much exposure to and that they might not be as comfortable with. I think, you know, we offer programs that people can come into maybe not knowing anything and go out of really feeling something and really feeling welcome and warm and getting something out of it. So I think that's one major thing. Um, the other thing is that we really try to focus on local artists. Um, there are a lot of great programs that I think bring in wonderful quartets. I mean, we love going to these programs um, from you know New York, from Boston, from Europe and all of that. Um, but we, we really try to focus our efforts on the wonderful local talent that we have and make sure that we're you know, giving them opportunities to, to have a, a career here. 
do we get to go to individual performances and venues? Do we buy a ticket for the whole festival? How does this work? You can do it whatever way you like. Oh, um, I love that. It's, it's <laughs> kind of a libertarian festival, as you like it. But tell, t- tell me how to do it. Exactly. So uh, we are offering single tickets to each program, as well as either two evening packages or you know a pass for the whole evening if you prefer. You can purchase all of those tickets in advance uh, at our website, conwayfinearts.com. It's right there on the homepage. Click on that event, and then we have links to all of the tickets. Um, if you are wanting to come to the wine tasting on Sunday, we do ask that you do your best. We'll still be offering tickets at the door, but do your best to purchase tickets for that in advance so that we can plan ahead, make sure we have enough food and drink for everybody. Um, and tickets for all of the concerts will also be available at the door at all of the venues. Right. And I see that there are reduced uh, price tickets for students at each of these events. That's right. Reduced price tickets for students. Um, and also, you know, we make a point of if the if the cost is a problem for anybody, just talk to us. We will never turn anybody away. Why is that? Because what we do is important. I think that's the simplest way to put it. Um, we want everybody to be able to experience this because we feel that it's fundamentally human. And so we think that it's just the right thing to do um, to make sure that we're not turning anyone away. Uh, Jeffrey Archambault, I'm not asking you to get sappy. What does that mean, music is fundamentally human? What does it mean to you? It connects me to the source of everything I value in life, and it is a language that transcends all words. And I find that after I hear a wonderful piece of music my head clears and it gives me perspectives that I didn't know I had before. Write that down, Bill. I want to remember that. So uh, let, me, let me follow with this question, Jeffrey. I know that uh, I have really, you know, you want to die with no regrets. One regret I have is when I decided that I love jazz, I became a jazz snob to the exclusion of other genres. You're here presenting classical music, folk music, from all around the world to people. What is it about this genre-crossing um, programming that Conway Fine Arts is offering people that, that makes you offer it? Well, I like to offer up the old chestnut that Duke Ellington proffered when asked about what his favorite music was. And he said, you know, there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. <laughs> well, which was his favorite? <laughs> well, I'll let you guess. I really love the depth of classical music and its ability to capture so much within its amazing range of expression. And that's why last year with our first festival, we captured the blues in classical music and this year we're doing folk music and I'm finding incredible inspiration in folk music from gypsy Native American and, and, um, and black spiritual traditions. How, how do we, I don't know whichever one wants to answer this, how do we have, I mean, was Native American folk music notated so that we could read it and preserve it over time? Well, it was passed down over centuries, and then when the Western world came into contact with it, we notated it. So what we have here is sourced from these amazing, amazing original melodies. Well, uh, and you are actually reading notated Native American music from centuries ago in what we're going to see this weekend? That's one way of saying it. These are 20th century composers that 
looked at the source material and wove these folk songs into these compositions. How long has it taken to put this together, to put the performances together? I mean, it sounds like an enormous amount of work uh, and practice and preparation. Can you tell us a bit about that? Would you like to speak about that, Michaela? Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, really, it started almost a year ago when we put our first one on. And then as soon as you finish it, you go, okay, what have we learned? And how are we going to continue building on this and putting it together? Um, and so kind of over the course of the year, we really brainstorm. We think about what we want it to be. Um, and then I would say the real sort of practical nitty-gritty work starts about two months before. That's when we you know, get the musicians to commit. That's when we really nail down the repertoire. And that's when the... the you know, the work for them really begins, and it is intensive. And before the musicians, before you have them, have you decided on the programs, what all the pieces will be, or is there some input from the musicians who you've hired to be part of this? We always get input from our musicians. So we'll start with a, sort of a theme or some sort of a direction to just help narrow it down. I mean, the world is so rich. If we opened it up to everything, we might we might never actually land on anything. Um so we'll sort of start with a framework, but then we always ask the musicians for their input, pieces they love. And the theme you started with was, was what? Folk music. Just folk music. Mm -hmm. The theme is classical folk tales, folk dressed up for the stage. Okay. And so performances and live performances in terms of plays or the like, that was part of the repertoire or part of the uh, universe that you, that, you, that you chose from? Uh, in terms of the storytelling? Yes. Yes. So we really went into more of the source material for that. So legends and folk tales that have been written down. Okay. So you can find out a lot more about this at conwayfineart.com. Friday at the Congregational Church in Ashfield at 7 o'clock. Saturday at 6 o'clock in the Three Sisters Sanctuary at 4.30. There will be movement uh, by Michaela. Archambault with uh, young kids ages 5 to 10. On Sunday at 4.30, there is the wine and cheese pairing uh, and a discussion by Laura, Michaela, and Jeffrey. And at 6.30 at Hawks and Reed on Sunday, it'll be the dramatic conclusion with Gershwin, Florence Price's Spirituals and Counterpoint, and Hayden's amazing string quartet. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you for bringing the viola. It was just great, Jeffrey. I will see you Friday night. Wonderful. At the Congregational Church in Nashville, Massachusetts. For the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember, let's all walk the walk. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-WHMP. My name is Silas Kopp. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. 
You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. 